Welcome back to the Piper Carter podcast. You are listening to Piper Carter on the Detroit is Different podcast network. And I am so excited because I have in the studio with me um, Detroit's own Kalima Johnson from the Sasha Center, also known as Nikki D. <laughs> did you bring that up? <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. Also known as Ebony and her business, too. Yes. <laughs> So, um, well, first things first, let's just, um, let everyone know what things that Sasha Center has coming up just off the top. All right. Great. Thank you, Piper, for having me on your show and on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Uh, you know, April is sexual assault awareness month. And so a lot of people that don't know that teal is the color. And we spend a lot of time bringing attention to and celebrating survivors of sexual assault and sexual trauma and making sure that uh, experiencers of sexual assault and sexual trauma have voice and visibility all month long. And so having me on the podcast this month is uh, our way of lifting our voices and talking about the work that we do at the Sasha Center. Um, Sasha Center was founded in 2010. Uh, and Sasha stands for Sexual Assault Services for Holistic Healing and Awareness, where we actually intentionally work in the African-American community, and we focus on uplifting the voices of Black women and girls who've experienced sexual trauma by providing them with support group services. So can you share, because um, when you say healing, right, it, you've been at the forefront of um, what I would consider African spirituality as a healing modality. Yes. So can you speak about that as, um, because you've explained it for so long, but could you just speak more about like that aspect of your work? It's so interesting that you bring that up because I was just talking about that earlier today with our lead facilitator, Lamender Davis. Um, Sasha Center is African-centered uh, and we were intentionally built to be African-centered because I really made Sasha Center out of my own life experiences. And I grew up in a household where my mother was very pro-Black, Afro-Black, African-Black, uh, teaching us all about our pride and our history and our culture. And I actually used to go to uh, Alexander Crumble, which actually turned into Aisha Shule. And so I have a, a very strong foundational uh, understanding of African traditional religion, African traditional culture and practices and food and music and dance. And I've been to Africa four times. And um, I decided back in 2010 that when we created the Sasha Center, we needed to incorporate that. And what that looks like um, is that we teach our uh, Black women survivors who participate in our groups uh, the Yoruba language. Uh, sometimes Black women come to group and they're like, well, I'm just used to saying amen. Well, amen works and we can say that too, but there's also another Yoruba term, ashe. And ashe means life force and ashe means and so it is and so it shall be. And so we integrate these kind of things into our practices every er, at every chance we get. And I'll never forget a few years back, we were having group 
And we opened our ceremony. We always open group with a libation ceremony, honoring our ancestors. We don't we don't open envelopes without saying, give it up to the ancestors first. And so we teach our experiencers who come to Sasha Center uh, the importance and the value of acknowledging our elders and then also acknowledging those who came before us, uh, practicing and using and talking about the Sankofa and what that antiqua symbol means and why it's important that we look back because we can't go forward unless we go back and get it. Um, and we and we incorporate all of that kind of stuff. And not just that, but African dishes and food and urban gardening, uh, music, uh, all of those things we try to incorporate into our work. And as of lately, we've been doing a lot of sharing with survivors, the stories of Yemeya and Oshun and, and Oya and the stories of Shango and the power of our African uh, stories and the griots and why it's important that we uh, maintain and keep that within. Uh, just keeping it, keeping it real and keeping it with our culture and teaching at the same time as sharing and also learning together. And again, I was going to say, I remember one time in group, we started out by talking about a libation ceremony and why it's important to do that before we gather and talk. And this one girl was like, oh, I know y'all got down like that. I'd have brought my Florida water. We was like, oh, wait a minute. We got some. And we went and got it, you know. And 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 the thing about it is that when we were intentional about creating the Sasha Center, uh, Piper, what we wanted to make sure is that we recognize, one, that Black women and Black communities have been healing for a long time. No one has asked us how. And so when we created the Sasha Center, we created that space to make it safe for Black women to come and tell us, what have you been doing? In addition to a slew of us all going to school and getting these degrees, that helps. But it really only helps when we're talking to the funders. And it really only helps when people want to question whether or not we are formally trained. So if someone wants to know if we're formally trained, we can, we can throw these degrees on the table for days, slap them on the table like, like a deck of cards, like we play in spades. Yeah, we got that. But we also have our own experiences culturally. We also have our own stories uh, personally. Uh, and we also have our own experiences politically that we bring to the table. And we make room and space for Black women to share their stories in ways that make sense to them. And without shaming them, without making them feel embarrassed or, or without making them feel like they got a code switch, you know, um, and we can really get deep into that conversation. Um, but more importantly, Piper, I want to say that we believe that culture cures and we believe that history heals. And we say that all the time. Have you had a chance to really dive into understanding the culture of your people? Have you really had the chance to dive into the historical resilient stories of our people? Like we know we were slaves. We know we were treated badly and all of that. But it's the perseverance, too, that we look at. Um, and we have to strike a balance because, you know, black women walking around with these superwoman capes on all the time. And we, we take them off, you know, like we give each other permission, like, hey, you don't have to be that today. That's OK. Uh, and usually, uh, Piper, when I tell folks, especially more this year than any other year before. I think something about the pandemic and something just about where we are in life right now. I'm being really clear about introducing myself as not just the executive director and founder, but I'm also a participant uh, in our services. I go to group as well. And it's an organic experience. There's not an us and a them. You know, it's we. Uh, and we work and we heal together collectively. Um, and again, I can't tell you how excited I am about the opportunity to uplift Black women in their stories and them sharing with us what they've been doing to heal because they have been. Uh, we just created a space for them to share it and tell it. And then the S is services. 
So can you break down the services that you offer as well? Absolutely. Thank you uh, for asking, Piper. So um, I have to I have to explain it this way, right? Because we are a nonprofit organization. We are funded by state funds. We are funded by the Office on Violence Against Women. We have federal dollars. We also have uh, big donors like Mitch Album and things like that. So when we talk about services, I have to frame it, right? Our services are about the business of making sure uh, that Black women and girls, anybody can come to our groups. Let me be clear. They have to be 16 years of age or older. But all we do is provide support group services, events, activities, and activism kinds of work and prevention and education uh, sessions and groups and community engagement. That's all we do. We don't do 24-hour care. We don't do a crisis line. We don't do any of those things. We only provide support group services. And the reason why is because uh, back uh, earlier, uh, before 2010, a lot of the complaints that we got in the city of Detroit was that there were no support groups for survivors of sexual assault in the city. They were always everywhere else on the other side of Eight Mile. You know, uh, in other counties, Black women had to go and try to get these services to mainstream organizations that didn't understand our culture, our language, or anything. Um, and so I said, no, we, we're not going to have that anymore. No one is going to be able to say anywhere outside of the city of Detroit that there are no support groups for survivors of sexual assault. There are. And um, I was saying that anybody can come to our groups. That is very true. It doesn't matter how you identify, but you do have to be 16 years of age or older. But we always try to remind people and the caveat and the nuance is that we're going to talk about slavery. We're going to talk about oppression, marginalization. Uh, we're going to talk about anti-blackness. Uh, we're going to talk about racism. Uh, we're going to talk about George Floyd. We're going to talk about police brutality. We're going to talk about over-policing in our communities. And if you're a person that's not Black and you're in that group, you may find yourself lost, you know, or you may find yourself having a need to stop us because you don't understand what chitlins are, or you don't understand what some other kind of nuance in our language. And then all of a sudden we got to stop and explain that to you. And we really don't have time for that because groups only are lasting an hour and a half to two hours long. And and I always try to let people know that there are multi-million dollar organizations that we happen to partner with that also provide sexual assault services that you can go to that are not going to be that specific and not be that detailed where you feel lost or where you feel ostracized or where you feel like you have to explain yourself or you get these white tears or you start crying or you start feeling guilty. And another nuance, too, and we've been working on this for a long time, is that Black women, we tend to show up in spaces wanting to help a lot of times. And that makes sense. Um, but a lot of times if someone comes in the room and they don't identify as black, sometimes they come in the room and they might identify as black and don't look black. And uh, next thing you know, everybody in the room going, oh, that person's problem is more important than mine. So let's just turn this into a didactic and let's just all figure out how we're going to help this one poor person. It's, and it's really internalized hate and racism and internalized you know, oppression that makes us do that. And then we take our facilitators are trained where we actually stop people and say, hey, do you all realize what's happening right now in the dynamic of this group? And we need to talk about that and what that means and then shift it and change the perspective and change the lens so that we all focus on each other and concentrate on our value just because we're human beings and not because one person has a different skin tone or a hair type or they show up in the space and they're not black. And how do we all show up for each other and make room for each other and accept each other? Uh, and that's another thing with our groups. If people identify uh, along whatever spectrum or scale of the of the uh, gender identity, 
uh, our groups are for women. If you live your life every day as a woman and you identify as a woman, then you should come to those groups. And then we have groups for men as well. And if you live your life every day as a man and you identify as a man, then you should come to the group. We don't care how you look. We don't care how you got here. We don't have, we don't care what you were. It's who you think you are and who you are and who you're living your life as right now. That's most important. So there's a lot of opportunity to teach tolerance, a lot of not just tolerance, but acceptance and celebration of differences as well. Uh, so we're really clear about that. Um, and I just also wanted to say that in our support group services, if people attend, uh, they can also ask for other types of assistance. And so we have uh, gift cards for groceries and gas. Um, we have a relationship with Everett's Braden and Cornwall Academy. So survivors of sexual assault who come to group can also go get their hair done while supplies last. Uh, right now we're doing pretty good. So survivors, uh, they, they are very mindful. Like, we have people in group who say, well, no, I got my hair done in January. I'll just wait and let me know if I can go back. But let's just save, you know, try to work that out. So uh, luckily we have that good relationship because uh, we recognize that um, getting your hair done is not just about uh, vein or beauty or anything like that. It really is a specific need that we see uh, for black women and girls that they need their hair done. So we have that relationship with Everest Spraying and Cornwall Academy. Um, and then I also want to say in our support groups, what we recognize in our community, the conversations that come up, Piper, is um, folks will say, um, I'm not a survivor or experiencer of sexual assault, but I think your group could be helpful to me anyway. Um, they can come too, uh, even if they don't identify and if they know someone. Or say, for instance, like in the city, unfortunately, there are lots of children who are being sexually assaulted. Uh, we are finding more now that not only are the children being sexually assaulted, but their moms and trying to help them are triggered. And then next thing you know, they're thinking about their own sexual assaults that they never had a chance to process or or integrate. And so we invite children whose mothers are trying to support them as they've been sexually assaulted to come to our groups as well. Mm. And then you also have specific groups for men. Yes. And you start doing that work on a huge scale. <laughs> you know, I, I think people really want it to be bigger than it actually is. <laughs> I wish we had the funding to take care of it. But I think that it's, I would call it huge with you because it's such important work. And I really want to be clear. We don't have many men that are disclosing that they are sexual assault experiencers uh, or that they've had sexual trauma. Uh, but more importantly, there are lots of men in the community who are good men who would never do these kinds of things to anybody. Uh, but they they love women who have been through it. And so a lot of times our groups end up being men who want to just figure out how better to support the women in their lives and their children in their lives uh, and the girls that are in their lives and in their community. And what we really try to concentrate on when we are engaging men with our prevention and um, education programs is to give them an opportunity to, one, talk about uh, the ways in which they've been brought up as men and boys and how that impacts the way they see women and girls, uh, to give men an opportunity to not win them over, you know, and turn them into black feminists, but to say, here's how you support a black feminist. Uh, here's how you support your mom. And here's how you support your girlfriend who's, who's disclosed to you. Here's what you can say to other men that you know who might be at risk of harming women and girls. So we really spend more of our time engaging with men who are not identifiers as, or someone who 
who's committed these kinds of crimes, but they all tend to know somebody who has. And so that's a, one of the questions that I always ask brothers when we're having these conversations is like, especially especially in my work, you know, because I work with the National Basketball Association as the lead consultant on relationship safety and management, uh, their, their lead consultant on that work. One of the first things I always ask my group of men in that space is why do you think we're talking about this in the first place? What do you think you can do with this information? Who can you help? Um, and do you know, even if you have never done anything, do you know a man who has? And they all have. And I'm like, well, that's why we're here talking about it, because you all know somebody. Uh, and that's who we're trying to impact through them connecting and having relationships and talking. And they can't talk about it if they don't have the proper information, background, or the understanding of uh, the culture, or understanding what rape myths are, or what consent is, or what rape culture is. Uh, and so we teach men that so that they can go out and have conversations or at least recognize when it's coming up and try to do something different to inc increase the safety of black women and girls, particularly. And then the last A is activism. And can you talk about because you do the walk uh -huh. and then you're at marches and then you're everywhere. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So uh, the actual last A is awareness. And oh, awareness. awareness. Yeah, no, okay, but that's okay. okay but, uh, but you can't bring awareness without <laughs> activism. So I like that. I mean, maybe we should change the name. <laughs> Sexual assault services for homeless and healing and activism. I like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, no, it's, it's for awareness. And we mm -hmm. do. We get involved in activism. And one of the first things that we did as an activism activity was in 2008, before we were even a full-time 501c3 um, nonprofit organization. And we actually held uh, the first protest of an R. Kelly concert in downtown Detroit. And that was in 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we went on to have other kinds of awareness activities, such as um, down at the, at the Y in downtown Detroit. Mm -hmm. We had a full conversation processing and um, like a, how would you call it, like a, um, an opportunity for people to process and talk about Precious, the movie. Uh, we invited women from all walks of life to come and talk to us because the movie had just came out and no one knew what to do with it after they left the film theater. So we definitely had a conversation with the book push uh, by, um, what was that poet's sister's name? <sighs> it's, it, it and Tashange? Did she write that or no? No, she wrote for Color Girls. Oh. Where is her name? Let it's me a, say. Okay, look I'm it up. Look it up. And so, anyway, so we had the book there. We gave the book away for free to put push, uh, and then we had the conversation about the film Precious. Um, and then um, our activism turned into Black women organizing to do our annual Take Back the Night Detroit, which is still happening today, uh, right now. Uh, even though we started it all those years ago with Serenity Services, and um, then Sasha Center took it over once Sasha Center got its nonprofit status. And we have, um, and we're going to have that event again virtually, and we're partnering with Wayne State University, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, and the Sasha Center, and Avalon, and a few other organizations. Uh, but that's virtual, and it's going to be on April the 29th at 6.30. And um, we can go in here and definitely drop something down here so people can see it. Um, uh, get the link. But if you want to, you can go to www.takebackthenightdetroit.org and get that information. Hey, everybody. I'm live on Sasha Center, by the way. I love y'all. Thank you for watching. Hi, Christina. Hi, Irene. And Hi, the, the author is um, Sapphire? Sapphire. Okay. I knew it was a one. I knew it was a one name. Uh, she didn't um, go by her last name. She was Sapphire. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, so our awareness activities, um, we will go wherever the people are. Uh, and we actually are looking to eventually 
eventually this is on my wish list of things to do, but I really want us to develop a Sasha Center response team for when survivors, black women particularly, want to disclose to their families that they are, they've been sexually assaulted. Uh, and in particular, if the perpetrator is still in the family, uh, we want to be able to start activating uh, opportunities for our response teams to go out to allow her that opportunity to disclose in a way that's healthy. Um, now don't flip the whole table turkey and the whole, don't turn the picnic out. Uh, there's there's ways to disclose in a way that's healthy, uh, and then also uh, providing the family opportunities to respond in a way that's healthy, and then also trying to figure out a way to deal with uh, the perpetrator in a way that's healthy without necessarily having to call the police. Um, and one of the books that I always recommend for people to read around love with accountability is a book called Love with Accountability. It was written by Aisha Shahida Simmons, and um, there are a collection of stories of people of color, all people, walks of life of people of color sharing what they think accountability should look like for those who have harmed them, especially when they were children in a sexual uh, in a sexual way. Um, and so it's my hope that one day we'll get a chance to build awareness in that way too, where we actually work in families. And one of the main reasons why we just have support groups at the Sasha Center too is because we believe that Black families can heal together. Uh, we believe that we heal better intergenerationally. Um, we also believe that uh, there's always an opportunity for teaching and learning in those spaces. And um, I just think that over time, what we've learned is that uh, Black folks tend to respond better in groups. And that's why we do it that way. So we don't offer individual therapy, counseling, or anything like that. We just stick to our support groups. And um, since the pandemic, all of our support groups now are virtual. Uh, they can go to the website, click on our registration button, scroll down, and they'll see all of the groups that are happening right now that they can just sign up for. Um, and we also are not about the business of gathering like so much information from Black women. Like Black women have taught us, and I'm not trying to paint a broad brush here, but we ain't trying to give you all that information. That's a whole lot of information you want just for me to come to a group. So we ask for the very basic stuff. Uh, so that we know that we can make contact with them if we need to follow up with them. But other than that, we're not asking about income. We're not asking about whether you're getting state benefits or not. We're not asking, we don't ask those kind of things. We just want to know, do you want to just be with other Black women talking about uh, healing and integrating uh, sexual trauma? And that's another thing. And I think it's really helpful when other people hear this. When you come to group, y'all, we don't ask... Uh, we don't ask you to tell us what happened. We don't need to know the details. You know what happened better than anybody, unless you want to share that. And then there's a way to do that as well. Um, and we don't ask for those kind of disclosures because that's not the important part. The important part is where do you want to go from here? And what do you want to do now? And where is your voice? Who, who are you? How can you express yourself uh, in terms of sharing what happened to you? It might you might want to share in a way that's not even like uh, talking. You might want to create, write, paint, walk, stretch, breathe, scream, cry, sing, recite. You know, um, there are lots of ways to express yourself. And us just sitting there like, girl, what happened? Tell us everything. That's not it. But you do have to do some kind of silence breaking at some point. But is for you to tell us what that looks like for you and for us to support you in that way. And as long as you're not causing harm to yourself or anybody else, we should be able to walk you through that. 
And then I want to throw some questions to you. Sure. They're not my thoughts. They're, they're, I'm going to say that they are statements that I've heard mm -hmm. that, um, you know, like when I've spoken to people, right, it feels like um, I'm arguing or trying to explain, but I don't have a um, master's degree in, what do you have? I think it's social work. And, I do. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I'm just a black woman in this world, you know, that has a friend like you that teaches me stuff. Yeah. So from your expert, you know, viewpoint, I want to ask you, like, maybe just some some simple questions that I think are pretty simple. Okay. But for some reason, they are confusing to a lot of people. Sure. Okay. So what is consent? Oh, right. So consent is an emphatic yes. A continuous yes. <laughs> A sure for show, yes. It's not a, I'm not sure, I don't know, wait a minute. Uh, I heard it was some other girls over here last night and they didn't have to do nothing. I just want to sit and chill. That, That's not it. Um, I think that consent can really be uh, broken down just by saying it is a yes without coercion, without threat, a yes without pressure, a yes without a power dynamic in place. It is a I am certain for sure. And then also I think it's important for people to understand and know that consent can be withdrawn at any time. Mm -hmm. uh, consent is not something that is once you say yes, you can't take it back. Uh, I think that's extremely important for people to understand about consent. Um, and then I also think it's extremely important for people to understand that I don't care what the person texts you. I don't care what they're wearing. I don't care what they said. I don't care what they promised you. If they are getting to a point where they're communicating something to you other than an emphatic yes, then you should treat it as a no. And if you're not clear, stop and get clarification. And if someone is sending mixed messages, say, I'm confused by what you're saying to me right now. Can we stop and have a conversation? What are your intentions tonight? And I really think that uh, consent can be talked about well in advance before you find yourself in any kind of intimate situation or in a isolated situation. Um, I tell people who are dating often, especially nowadays with online dating and people, you know, just meeting and hooking up and stuff like that. Just tell, tell people what your intentions are, mm -hmm. you know, in the very beginning, if you know for sure. Uh, and then people should respect and honor that. Like consent really is about respect and honor. And consent is about being human. Um, I think that a lot of people sometimes if you're frustrated or you're upset or you're mad because someone's changing their mind or someone has changed their mind, um, being able to control yourself to the degree that the person is still safe is also a huge part of consent as well. But, but usually I say really quickly to most people that consent is an emphatic yes, uh, a for sure yes, a continuous yes, an ongoing yes, and that the person is clear. And a lot of people ask me all the time, and I, I get this question a lot, how do I know when I've gotten consent? Wait, ask, get a yes. <laughs> and then if you, and it's not really about how do you get it? How do you know when somebody's communicating to you? No. Can you understand that? Honor that, respect that too. So, I mean, consent can be confusing for a lot of people, but at the end of the day, it only becomes confusing when people don't want to hear your no. It only gets confusing mm -hmm. when people want to confuse your yes. Uh, it only gets convoluted when people still want to have the right to have sex with you, whether you want it or not. 
And and I think that that's 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 what we need to be talking about. Um, I think definitely consent is about the business of understanding that you have uh, a definite and for sure ongoing, comfortable, safe and happy. Yes. And it is agreed upon by all parties. And then so. (laughs) okay, Can you give a couple of. um, Maybe examples of how um, a person who uh, may be in a situation that possibly struggles with saying no. Mm-hmm. Can you give a couple of examples of, you, you gave a few, but can you give a couple, like, you know, for a person who may feel um, embarrassed or or maybe feeling confused about their own feelings because you also named that it doesn't matter if you're dating a person and, you know, a situation, you know, like if a person is like, okay, well, I did go come to the date and I did, you know, come to the bedroom and I do, I did like take my clothes off. So can you kind of help that person understand how they can, you know, communicate uh, for themselves? Cause sometimes people don't have language. I I agree with you 100% about not having language, but I really think that our time would be better spent telling people how not to try to put people in those positions. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, part of what women have not been taught is how to say no. Um, Because we're, we're always having to do things, be things and uh, provide. And, you know, I think a lot of pressure is on black women, particularly to not say no, like we don't have a right to say no, uh, for a whole lot of reasons. Like we couldn't say no when we were enslaved. Uh, we can't say no on the, on the, on the cotton fields. We couldn't say no to the master. We couldn't say no, uh, as we're, as we're trying to navigate, trying to get a job. We couldn't say no during the civil rights movement. We just couldn't say no. (laughs) So I think, our conversation would best be focused on people not putting people in those positions. Like, I think also that another thing that happens where consent is confused and gets in trouble is when there are substances involved, when people are using drugs and alcohol. Um, I think that complicates things as well. Uh, But I think if we spend more time with young people coming up, especially young women and girls, to teach them that it's okay for them to set boundaries around their bodies, to say no, and to tell when they're uncomfortable. And we need to hear that. So, I mean, how many times do you know, like Black girls growing up minding their own business and they just growing breasts and all of a sudden they're fast when all they're doing is growing. And so I think that... Uh, I wouldn't have a very specific thing for anybody in particular when it gets muddy like that. Um, But I do know for a fact that the minute someone feels uncomfortable, they should voice that. They should say it. Uh, They should definitely uh, word word it that way. And then there are also safety measures that people can take, but we have to be really careful that those safety measures aren't blaming victims. And what happens in our society so much is that we're so quick to blame people for their situation instead of asking those who are committing these kinds of acts, egregious acts and crime and criminal acts, we always got to ask, well, why were you over there? What were you wearing? What were you doing? How did you do that? Why you do this? Why you do that? And the bottom line is no one is asking the perpetrator, why didn't you just stop? Why didn't you just stop and make sure the person is safe and holding perpetrators accountable for their behavior? I don't know if I answered you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's my question. Yeah. And then, um, 
How does a person who has been um, violated, how does that person um, bring themselves to ask for help or to seek help? I don't know. Um, What I can say is that when somebody does eventually share and tell somebody, we got to know how to respond to it. A lot of times we're not responding correctly. And I really want people to hear this. If someone trusts you enough to disclose to you that they've experienced a sexual trauma or sexual assault, one of the first things you can say is, I believe you. Not You don't have to turn into this investigator. I, am, I believe you. And then ask, how can you help? And listen. And listen to that person. If that person says, I just want you to sit here with me, sit there with them. If that person tells you that they want to contact the police and take the steps towards prosecution, then walk through that step with them. If uh, that person says, I just want to be quiet, then be quiet and just wait and let them tell you what they want and what they need. Because survivors and experiencers, they know better at any given time what they need. And sometimes if it's a recent sexual assault, one of the best things you can do for a victim is let them sleep. And a lot of times try to make sure that they're safe so that they can sleep. Because what happens is when you sleep, the brain allows itself to recollect the events much better. So when and if they decide to report, they'll have a better recollection of what has happened. Um, One of the things I will say, though, is that it's hard for Black women particularly to talk about these things. And I talk about this in the Black Triangulation Model, is that Black women don't tend to disclose because they're always being blamed for or not being believed. So they tend not to to say anything. So if you have somebody in front of you telling you that they've been sexually assaulted, the best thing that anybody can do is be supportive, listen, and and really pay attention to making sure that you're not asking them questions that put the blame on them. And I know there's lots of pushback around this, like, hey, but they did this and they did that. Always when you get ready to start asking a victim or a person who tells you they've experienced a sexual trauma, start asking yourself about the person who did it to them. Start thinking about them. Don't just think about the person right in front of you and ask, why did that person do that? How many times have they done this before? Uh, What is it about that person? Just make sure that you are uh, moving in that direction. And one of the things I want to say, too, that I think is extremely important around disclosures is that we don't we have not we have yet to have a society where disclosures are celebrated, honored, revered, trusted, believed and and respected. Uh, And we need to respect disclosures much more than what we do. Uh, because when somebody is disclosing, that takes a lot of strength, a lot of power, and a lot. And sometimes it could be just they're tired, you know. Like I'm tired of holding this secret. I'm tired of, you know, trying to pretend like this didn't happen. And I'm tired of trying to fake the funk. I'm tired of sitting next to so and so, knowing that this person harmed me as a child. I mean, some people just get tired and they just be like, "Look, I'm just about to, it's about to blow. I'm about to tell everybody." So, um, I just want survivors, if they're hearing this, and and experiencers, if you are hearing this and you are ready to disclose, you could call uh, a national hotline and talk to somebody. Rain is one. Um, we could put the contact information under here. Um, Rain, um, you could contact them. There's a 24-hour hotline and talk to somebody and they could talk you through that. Um, you can also uh, call our agency. Come to group first and talk to other people and figure out how they did it. Ask how they disclosed, how they shared. 
Um, one of the things I do want to say, too, is that there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with sexual abuse and assault, and we really have to put the blame where it belongs, which is on perpetrators, period. And one of the one of the saddest stories that I keep hearing over and over again, especially in the Black community, is that people don't believe that perpetrators exist in our community, but they do. Um, and they are able to exist and continue to harm because no one is holding them accountable. And holding people accountable is not necessarily jail time, if you will, even though that's that's old thinking. Sometimes it might just be something else that they can do. Um, one of the things I want to say, too, is that I think it's extremely important for our communities to stop being so ashamed and afraid to talk about sex, even in its healthy forms. We don't talk about sex at all. So there's so many um, things that have us trapped about talking about sex. Like we don't teach our children the proper names of their body parts. Um, we tend not to, I'm not saying everybody, but I am saying that when we do that, that's not healthy, it's not good, it doesn't help. Uh, we're not openly having conversations about sex. Uh, we're not openly having conversations around respect and sex. Uh, we're not openly having conversations around respecting people with different gender identities, different uh, sexual orientations. Mm -hmm. And I believe that uh, Black radical love requires that we make room and space for everybody uh, in the Black community to be able to talk about these issues. Uh, and more importantly, holding on to the secrecy of being harmed sexually is so heavy. And all that we're trying to do at the Sasha Center is provide an opportunity for people to process, uh, to lower their isolation, to engage in joy, uh, and to participate and understand that they are not alone in trying to deal with sexual abuse and assault. And then um, you named that your groups also include the people who um, are family members mm -hmm. of people experiencing. So supporters supporters right. so let's say and that could be a family member a teacher a friend i'm sorry mm -hmm. cousin sister it could be anybody so let's say it's a a, a parent mm -hmm. who may be feeling guilty or embarrassed or whatever other feelings that people may be feeling mm -hmm. how can how can that person um what would you say to like that person to be able to step forward to uh maybe seek support I would say push past the guilt. Try to picture yourself on the other side of releasing and letting go of what has happened. I would also say that parents can be very hard on themselves about a lot of things, um, but that healing comes when you are able to face your truth. Healing comes when you're able to share your truth. Healing comes when you're able to integrate that truth. So the whole bottom line around sexual abuse and assault, and I would say this to anybody, is that our job is to not forget it. You're not going to ever forget it happened. It happened. Um, but our job is to integrate it and see it as a place of power for your own storytelling and your own experience and then use it to help others. Um, and I think that to a parent who's feeling guilty or ashamed is that Talk to somebody that you trust. Talk to somebody who you feel would, would not blame you or would not accuse you. Call the Sasha Center. Come to group, you know, and you don't have to say anything on the first day. Just come to group. We do ask that you have your camera on uh, and we do ask that you're in a private location. 
Um, but other than that, you could just come and just sit and, and just listen and watch and hear other people. Let other people show you their examples of breaking their own silence um, about what has happened. Um, and the other thing, too, is that you're going to feel these feelings. Feel them. But don't let those be the only feelings you feel like strike a balance, you know, be like, give yourself a break, show yourself some grace, uh, actually uh, look for people who are like you look for uh, folks. And, and by the way, on our Facebook page, we have tons and tons of videos and content that people could just watch so that they can start understanding all the dynamics that come with sexual abuse and assault, because I think some of the questions that people may ask about these things comes from their own myths and own misnomers and ideas about what rape and sexual assault is. So they don't know that they don't understand the law. They don't understand the culture and they don't even understand how and why these things happen. Sexual assault happens because somebody wants to have more power and control over somebody else. And they got nothing to do with sex and they got nothing to do with feeling good. It never has. Sexual abuse and assault is about having power and control over somebody else. And once we really start integrating that and understanding that this is not a feel good, this is not a, oh, I got a fine woman at home. Why would I want to do something to somebody else? All of that is mess. It's just all myths and mess is what I call it. Um, but really, it's about power and control and the extent to which people want to have it over other people. Um, and I think it's really, really sad that we have not, as a people, had a chance to really unpack those things and talk about those things in our community. And I also think that, and I must just say it, white supremacy and patriarchy uh, has a huge role in the ways in which Black men think they should be showing up in the world and also has a huge impact on black women and how they should show up in the world and has a huge impact on our relationships. And it also has a huge impact in terms of how we deal with each other when sexual assault is in, in, in our families and in, in our community. So. And so far, I mean, I would say in general, mm -hmm. as a generality, mm -hmm. many times when, um, when we see, uh, maybe articles or the conversation about sexual assault, um, many times it's in the context of dating and in the home. Can you speak about the workplace? And, um, and, like and sexual harassment in the workplace? Or, or, or even uh, assault, you oh, know, sure. in the workplace, yeah. I look at it all as assault. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so to say more about that in the workplace, I think we've done a lot with the Me Too movement. I think we've had a chance to talk about it a lot. Um, but it's no, it's the same exact power dynamic. It's the same exact power and control. Uh, a lot of times, uh, some people may not even see sexual harassment as sexual harassment, but when you have a subordinate um, in a room and there's a, a, a supervisor or someone that has power over somebody else's job and what they do on a regular basis, uh, if there's inappropriate conversations, if there's inappropriate touching, if there's inappropriate uh, approaches, if there's a, a dinner afterwards and then there's some, some something that happens there that's not consensual, um, it's no different than what happens in community every day. But one thing that I will say is that what makes it different, I guess, Piper, is um, the notion that people need their jobs. They want to keep their jobs. They want to, you know, move up in the world. And I think there's a lot of dynamics, like there's some kind of guilt and shame applied to women, particularly who want to move up, want to move up on a ladder. Oh, you just want to move up. That's why you were entertaining him. That's why you went out to dinner with him. That's why you did this. That's why you did that. But some work environments are ripe for rape. Uh, some work environments are ripe for rape because there is no, uh, messaging put forth that that's inappropriate, it won't be accepted, it can't happen. 
Um, it shouldn't happen. Um, and then you got to think about when women came into the workplace in the first place. Like <laughs> a lot of times in this country, uh, there is a notion that women mm -hmm. are objects. You know, not only that, you have men who are also sexually harassed too, mostly by other men. Um, but when it happens, it shouldn't happen to anybody. So in the workplace, I would say that there are certain things <laughs> that people have to look at, like stuff that don't make sense to me. I was actually doing some consulting work with an organization mm -hmm. and they had a lawyer come in and tell them after the Me Too movement that there was they created a rule where they, no one could touch at work anymore. That's not going to solve the problem because somebody's still going to have some kind of power dynamic over somebody else. What do you mean y'all can't touch anymore? People hug, people shake hands. I mean, they just do it at work. Y'all really treating. And I think the bottom line is we keep expecting men to show up in spaces acting like animals and men are not animals. Men are human beings. Men can make decisions. Men have control. Men can exude lots of control. They can do the same thing when they're dealing with women. And I've seen lots of good men do it. And in workspaces, particularly if they're not addressing these things, if they're not listening, if they're not believing the people when their complaints come up, it just makes it for a really bad environment. And at the end of the day, there are things that people do at jobs that are just inappropriate. I mean, down in Florida, they said there was a, a particular organization. They had a whole like uh, office party and they had hired sex workers there. So, so it's those kinds of things. Like some people, again, want to just have the right to keep doing these things. And the more we push back and the more we try to create policies and the more we try to address these things, I think the better off we are. But I literally don't think that corporate work or working in a workplace is any different than being in being in community. I think, I think they both have the capacity to happen. Um, so uh, I am saying, and based on the question that you've asked, Piper, I think it is important for people who are listening now to know that if they are experiencing any kind of harassment at the workplace, that they should call it up to human resources, say something and keep saying something. And I mean this from a three-year-old to a 90-year-old. If someone is harming you, if someone is putting you in a position that's uncomfortable for you, that's sexual in nature, tell and keep telling. Break your silence. And yes, some you may get called out your name. You may not be believed. Keep telling until somebody believes you. And um, can we talk about enabling or enablers? How, because there's enablers, right? In yeah. in different situations. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to, you know, we've had so many conversations about different things, but, you know, you've shared a lot of brilliance around enabling or, you know, people, there's people who are intentionally uh, enablers and there are people who are unintentional behavior. Um, enablers. Mm -hmm. And I want to, you know, just speak about enabling. I think enabling is about silencing. I think that people are enabled when we don't act. I think that people are enablers when they see something happening and they don't say anything. Um, I think that enablers can show up in many different ways. It's not, it's not, enablers aren't a particular gender. Uh, nor race, nor orientation or anything like that. It is the folks that know something is going on and they don't say nothing. Uh, it is the folks that know something is going on and they keep creating opportunities for it to go on. It's for those who choose not to say anything, to act like they don't see anything, to act and pretend like it's not happening. Um, protectors of perpetrators. Um, I think that that happens a lot. I think um, I heard on the news yesterday that they were looking for a sexual, uh, a sexual assault 
a person who committed sexual assault against a child and they say right now they can't find him because they believe that the family is hiding him. And so those are enablers. So an enabler uh, is a person or people or a group of people that know that something is happening and choose to turn the other cheek or ear or eye or not say anything and do anything. And sometimes people are enabled because they're traumatized themselves. Uh, sometimes I think enablers show up in ways because they're trying to protect their own their own life experiences. They, they don't feel like they can say or do anything. I think enablers are those who will support uh, misogyny, those who will support uh, uh, ideas and ways in which people show up in the world in, in ways that are not protective and that are harmful. I think that enablers believe in the rape myths. I think enablers are those who do a lot of victim blaming. I think that enablers are people who uh, want the status quo to stay the same. Like, And I think sometimes it's really interesting to see it happening in, in lifetime. But You'll have a group of people, and I think the cancel culture in this world is getting real big now, but that's a whole other story. But you'll have a group of people, and somebody decides they want to heckle somebody or or catcall somebody, and, and it's so inappropriate, and it's so uncomfortable, and people are just standing there, and they don't know what to do, and so they don't just say anything at all because they don't want to be the uncool person, or they don't want to be the person that is stopping all the fun, or they don't want to be the person that's ruining it, ru ruining it for everybody. And I think a lot of times that's why Black women take sexual assault to their graves, because they've been already conditioned that if you say something, you're going to ruin everything for everybody. Those are the enablers. And then, you know, there's so many questions that I hear all the time, probably you too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I'm going to just tell you a quick story. Sure. Um, there's a person and um, she has a, a son. Her son was a teenager. And um, the, the teenager is, I don't know, maybe 16, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there's a young uh, woman a young 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 girl who sent him a picture of herself mm -hmm. um she's a teenager mm -hmm. she's same class maybe 16 mm -hmm. so she sends him um i think maybe a nude picture of herself mm -hmm. and he um trashes the picture in his phone but the the young woman's father somehow finds out because I guess she maybe have sent this picture, not just to him. And so the father somehow uh, finds out about it and goes to the school. And so the, my friend's son mm -hmm. gets in trouble because he didn't report it. He yeah. just, he threw it away. He didn't, he didn't report it, but he didn't know that he had to report it. He just thought, Oh, this is inappropriate. Threw it away. And it's a whole thing. So it ended up that now he has, I think, what is it called? The it's a, a, a he's a registered sex offender now. He's a registered sex offender now. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about texting and the texting culture and just speak to that? Just because we're in that world where people are do, are 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 sending, you know what I mean? So how yeah. do how, just like speak to that because that world is confusing for everyone. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. It's confusing to you too. Yes, yeah, it's, it's confusing to me too. But I will say this that mm -hmm. um any kind of uh picture of an underage person uh nude is pornography and you can't have it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a law against it and 
if you have it and you don't report it, especially being a kid. And and, and that's a whole like that may be rules at that particular school or mm-hmm. rules at that particular city state. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that texting uh, sexually inappropriate pictures to each other is illegal. I mean, and, mm-hmm. but and it shouldn't be done. And if you're going, if you're caught up in that, you got to tell an adult, you got to let somebody know. Um, that's really not my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that uh, we're living in a world where everybody thinks that information, they that they should just be passing stuff along. Like, I, I, can, I can't tell you how many DMs I get of trauma. Like, people I don't know very well will send me sexual explicit trauma in my DMs because I run the Sasha Center and that's mm. what you do. And it's just like, no, can you not do that? And so every day, almost every day, I have to ask people not to send me uh, sexually explicit trauma, you know, because I don't really want to see it. And I don't think it's, I, I, I really think that we as a, a community of people have to get better with uh, being mindful about how harmful those things are. Uh, and then also, Teenagers do what teenagers do, you know, mm-hmm. and they're going to get caught up doing some things and make mistakes. Um, and they should be allowed to have an opportunity um, to correct those mistakes. But with pornography and all of that, that's just something you don't you don't mess with. But that's not my wheelhouse. So I really mm-hmm. I really can't speak to it other than people need to be mindful and be careful about that. And when it does happen, they need to get get tell an adult and. And the sexual registry, um, if you if you offended, then you're gonna be on there, whether you mm-hmm. were intentional or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and that's just their way of trying to keep communities safe. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's I can't, I really just can't speak to it. I don't know other than that. Yeah, and and it is confusing. I mean, just in the land of you know, the, all this is kind of new, right? Not not new, but yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's 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 not just kind of new. In addition to it being kind of new, it's just uh, we work with children 16 years of age or older. And so our younger people do have an issue with um, texting uh, pictures of themselves inappropriately. Everybody wants to be accepted and everybody wants love. And there's a whole lot of coercion that goes on with naked pictures that end up on the internet. Um, that coercion could be, we go together, I love you, let me take a picture of your breast because I want to have it with me. And then the minute that relationship don't work out, everybody in the school has it. So these things are all used as, as measures and, and opportunities for coercion. And I think the best thing that people can do is to please don't take pictures of your junk and send it nowhere because it can just end up being very problematic. And I deal with that a lot with um in, in the professional spaces that I work in where we have people who are just, they're just sending out stuff. They got all kinds of apps for it. There's an app, uh, I think, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's brand new where people just pay people money to just have pictures of themselves naked around. And I mean, if they're adults, that's their business. But with the young people, I just think that it's best that they don't do it. And then can you define um, coercion? Sure. Uh, coercion is a tactic used to uh, to actually, it's not just about sex, but coercion is a tactic that's used to get people to uh, put people in positions where they can't say no, you know, where they can't, they have to say yes. Uh, coercion could look like, uh, and it can be done with conversations all the way up to guns, all the way up to threats. Uh, coercion is really an act of, I'm going to put you in a position where you have to say yes to me. And if, 
And if you don't say yes to me, then you're going to suffer some kind of consequence. Uh, an example of what coercion could look like is uh, putting people, like I said, you might have, and this happens a lot in the LGBTQI community, and it's kind of sad, but you have a family that will put a kid out because that kid has come out the closet. The kid's homeless. Next thing you know, that kid need a couch to sleep on. Kid's sleeping on somebody's couch. And they say, yeah, you can sleep on the couch, but, you know, I want this or you need to do that. Uh, and that's coercion. Um, coercion can also look like, oh, I remember this uh, story from a long time ago. It was a group of kids, older kids. And I wouldn't, I'm saying kids because I'm grown, grown, but uh, a, a group of young folks in their 20s, uh, winter storm, deep east side, brought some girls over there in their cars, middle of a winter storm, no Ubers at that time of night, no no cell phones. And they basically was like, hey, this was, I'm talking about landline old time ago. Like, you know, hey, whoever don't want to have sex tonight, you can go. Just walk out, leave. In the middle of the night, in the middle of a winter, that's coercion. Mm. Oh no, you you don't have to stay here. You 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 don't have to do anything, but you can't stay. You gotta go. That's coercion, and coercion can look like a lot of different things. Um, um, have sex with me so you can get this job promotion, or do something with me, or 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 you won't or you won't have that opportunity. You won't get a chance to meet those people. I'm not gonna play your demo. Um, you know, all those kinds of things can be coercion and, 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 it's, and it's problematic. So um, I think that coercion is, I think people use coercion when they don't want to use violence. And they use words and they use, and they use different ways and tactics to, to, to do that. So, And I want to ask you, um, this one came up a lot when we were doing the R. Kelly stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, you were so helpful for that. You're talking about the mute R. Kelly, uh, the most recent time that actually yeah, the, landed him in jail. Yeah, the most recent time that work we did together. Yes. So this one, this one came up a lot. It was um I may I may be paraphrasing. Sure. But around um if uh I mean you've spoken about consent mm -hmm. or the lack thereof, you've spoken about coercion. So the idea of a teenager uh, that's um, on that so-called um, brink of legal age, quote unquote, making their own decision. Can you speak about that, please? Well, depending on what, depending on what state you're in, you cannot consent to sex if you're under the age of 16. Period. It's a criminal sexual conduct if you have sex with somebody under the age of 16. If they're over 16, they cannot be having sex with somebody that's 21. And that's the law. So what I heard and what you heard and what we talked about and what we had to push back on is the adultification of black women and girls, which is a, a coin, a frame, a phrase coined by Georgetown University. They did an entire research study about how black girls are treated as if they're adults when they're not. And so all of that pushback we was hearing was people really talking about black women, and, like black girls having their own agency when, in fact, they're children. They don't look like that. They may not act like that. And then also, I didn't like how they was trying to make uh, young black girls feel guilty for wanting a career in music. Like, she should want to sing. She can sing. She 
needs help. Right. And who is the adult in the room? But I also have pushed back on that, too, because people would ask who's the adult in the room and not ask about R. Kelly. Like R. Kelly is the one, you know, and I don't really want to make this conversation about R. Kelly uh, by being sexual assault awareness month. I want to keep celebrating survivors. And so what I will say is this. I will say that I was glad that finally they began to speak up. And sometimes there's power in numbers. So once one person spoke up and then they saw how they were being treated, the other victims, they was like, oh, no, nah, because that happened to me. And I know how that go. And I know how that went. So now I'm going to say something. And the same thing happened with Bill Cosby. And I think that it's difficult for black folks to have these conversations because they don't understand that artists can be monsters and musicians and magicians. And they don't understand that human beings could be and in both. Mm-hmm. And they are. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, which is an African principle. Say, repeat it then. <laughs> repeat that. <laughs> Which is an African principle Principle to understand that people are and in both. People are not good or bad. They're good and bad. It's not evil versus good. It's evil and good. And you get to choose. That's mm-hmm. an African principle. Mm-hmm. And Black folks need to put that back in their souls, their spirits, and understand that, yes, you have somebody who did this much good, mm-hmm. and they also are monsters too. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to look at both sides. hmm and then, you know, with that, um, I asked you something before, uh, I don't know, maybe like a couple months ago on the phone. And there are, I wanted to talk about the, um, I don't know the, the proper term because I don't know if it's called, because I know sex positive could be uh, you're just uh, proud of your body. Sure. But um, is it uh, the sex workers that are? I don't know if the proper term is sex positive, where there's this whole movement around um, uh, uh, sex work as um, viable work. Well, viable work, but um, where there's sex work and and then there's activists within the uh, sex work Mm -hmm. uh, community. Sure. And I want to know if you could speak anything. It's can you speak to that? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because. Uh, what we're really super excited about. We have two new therapists coming on probably in the fall to do a sex positive group for survivors of sexual assault. And my thing is, um, I'm not here for that fight. I don't want to fight with my sisters about that. What they do is what they do. I want them to be safe. I want them to feel whole. I want them to, I want them unionized. And I believe there is a union that started in Europe and I think they were trying to move their way this way. Um, I think that um, black women should have ownership of their bodies and they should be able to have autonomy around their bodies and what they do with their bodies. All I always ask about, and we and you have talked about this before, is follow the money. Follow the money. Sex work is about money. Who's making the most money? Who's benefiting? Uh, who who feels unsafe? Who's in a situation where they're being coerced? Who is being trafficked? Uh, all of those things that cause harm. So I'm all about body positivity. I'm all about sex positivity as long as you're not being harmed, as long as you feel safe. And who gets to say what's har- what harm is and what harm isn't? I definitely am not going to stand up for that fight and say what's harmful and what's not harmful because I am in no position to do that. But I am in position to say, especially for my sisters, that they have every right to express themselves sexually. They have every right to express themselves in ways that maybe I don't understand because it's a generational gap. Uh, But at the end of the day, my question is always, are you safe? And my next question is, where's the money? Mm -hmm. 
So if somebody other than yourself is benefiting more than you, it's a problem. And if you don't have no health insurance, it's a problem. And if you're mm. not able to determine whether or not you have been exposed to an STD and get help and get services for that, it's a problem. If you can't make decisions about pregnancy, it's a problem. Uh, and so I believe in uh, that kind of autonomy for, for Black women particularly, because that's who I'm here for. Uh, but Black women get to have that autonomy, but they also get to be safe. But having that conversation and argument about whether or not sex work is something positive or negative, I ain't getting into that fight and then um this is another common one yeah. the music industry mm -hmm. and women let's just stick to like the women's images of women in hip-hop sure and now I'll, I'll throw i'll just say music because it's across the it's board across the board yeah can, right. can you speak to that but first i want to speak on just like the commercial level and then after <laughs> that i want to go into maybe your personal um, experience in music business? Sure. Um, uh, that's, that's a, that's a loaded question, but I think I know where I want to start. Um, I think what I have to say about that, as we think about sexual assault awareness month is there's a thin line between liberation and exploitation. Uh, and I think that reasonable folks know the difference between the two. I think also it's important to track uh, history and how we ended up where we are. You know, when I think about the Venus Hottentot and when I think about uh, some of the choices or genres that people decide to sing and choose to, choose to uh, promote. Um, one of the things I know for sure is when WAP came out, um, there was a big debate about it because I think people were waiting on me to respond to it. And I did on my personal page. Uh, and I just talked about um, the pressure that um, is applied when people are in that, showing it in that way. And so, or showing up in that way, that there's a lot of pressure applied for performance. There's a lot of pressure applied for uh, how you're supposed to show up in the world, how sex is supposed to be, how you're supposed to look. Just a lot of pressure. And I think that uh, there's no balance. Uh, I wish there was more of a balance in our music. I think that's happening. I think there's a shift happening right now in music in terms of how women are presenting themselves, uh, particularly. But I will say this, that uh, my own career in rap music uh, landed flat when, uh, there be when, it, when, it, when it became a trend to show up scantily clad and dressed in a pro, you know in ways that I would never dress or talking about things that I would never talk about on on songs and I think that there's a place for it um I really wish that there was a category of music that they would just label as pornography and just mm. put it over there because that's where it belongs because that's what it is um mm -hmm. and that's kind of how I feel but um I just think that we also have to think about the impact of of that kind of imagery on young girls' minds, not just young girls, older women too, uh, but on our minds as women, uh, the kind of impact that is. And so one of the examples that I can give in terms of my own experiences and impact is do play what you want to play, do what you want to do. But when I walk into a room full of men and I say, treat women and girls with respect, they got a whole library, if you will, of music and images that say, I don't have to. And that's the dilemma. Yeah, that's a dilemma. And I want to, um, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, this work. I want to um, just talk about you for a minute. Yeah. And how phenomenal you are. Oh. Because you're, you are 
an artist, you're, you are a poet, you're, um, I would say you're a healer, even though healers always say, don't call me healer, but, uh, <laughs> oh, no, I'm clearly that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I can okay. own that one. I will buy that one. Yes. Okay. okay. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And, um, you know, you are, um, a pioneer, you're a legend. And I wanted to, you know, to dig into that a little bit. I know it's like a sharp turn, but it speaks to, um, I mean, and you spoke about your personal history, but it also speaks to your passion around um, cult, the cultural aspect of um, the healing process. Sure. And um, can you speak to your, your personal path with um, the arts? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, um, keeping it in line with what we're talking about, it's not mm -hmm. a huge term because it all comes together and it really makes sense, right? So, um, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. I was sexually assaulted by a female cousin of mine from the time I was about four years old until I was nine. Um, and a lot of times I didn't have anything to turn to but to write. And I used to just write all the time. Um, but then I remember writing um, about a reflection that I was having that I would be, I would be at my aunt's house in the back digging up dirt, like making poison. Like I would tell myself I was making poison. Uh, so I was kind of messing around in, in the herbs anyway, just trying to figure stuff out um, and to heal. And so uh, then I was sexually assaulted again by uh, a first date situation. And then I was sexually assaulted again by so-called boyfriend. And all of that happened before the age of 21. Um, I decided that I was going to be a rapper when I was 13 years old after hearing Rapper's Delight. Uh, and I told my mother, I said, listen, I want to be a rapper. And I'll never forget my mother said to me, um, you have to remember two things. I said, what's that? She said, you are what you say. Whatever you say in the universe is going to come back every time. And she proved that to me over and over and over again. And I remember one of her last points of proof around you are what you say. She told me about Biggie. She said, you can't name your album Ready to Die and Think You Won't. And I said, yeah, I remember you told me, watch what I say. And then the second thing she said to me is, if you can't say it in this living room in front of me and your sisters, you can't say it outside. <laughs> so I was like, dang, that means I can't cuss. So I kind of kept those two things with me as I was writing. And one of the things is that I think I had to write myself back to life. And I just kept writing and, and reciting and, and doing this, this rap stuff, um, which I loved. I really loved. And um, luckily, I got a 12-inch record put out by uh, Edward Poe. And then my second uh, release never came out, but I ended up with a amazing group of Black men. I was uh, the only female rapper on World One Records uh, with DJ Losa, Easy B, Chaos and Maestro, Dice. Um, and we had a few other folks that we worked with, but we were the main folk. So Ferry, uh, well, his name was Chaos then, but, uh, and all these men are doing great things now. You know, <laughs> DJ Lowe's just got finished making beats for uh, Rakim. Uh, Teferi is a uh, leader in the Christian uh, community and world. And Jason is just blowing up. He got the union down the street, um, helping young, young men and boys uh, feel, you know, and so. Um, it was just it was just a natural for me to actually end up in the uh, music industry in that way. And I think that in my life, as I've integrated these sexual traumas that happened to me, 
I also uh, made a conscious decision that my creativity was more important than my pain and that I would always engage in creativity and share that and not just share my own creativity and do that. And I ended up being the first female rapper, one of the first female rappers on Wax in Detroit. Um, And that's an honor that I will always hold on to. And I was born and raised in the city. I still live in the city. Detroit runs through my veins. uh, And that is very important to me. And it's so important to me that even at the Sasha Center, I tell folks specifically our services are for Black women who are moving in space in Detroit, uh, whose families were enslaved and they migrated up here to work in these factories. I'm real clear about what women I want to work with. And here's the thing I know for sure about the Sasha Center. And I'm always saying this and my facilitators say it too. And it's an unfortunate thing, but it's a true thing. Wherever Black people are, so is sexual trauma. Wherever Black people are, so is sexual trauma. And either you saw it or you are it. Either you know it or you've been it or you did it. Yeah. And so that's how I decided to take all of those things about, about, about being a healer to heart. And I didn't get there easy. I dropped out of school in the ninth grade. I never went back. I got a GED that I call a good enough diploma. And I finally decided to go to Wayne State University after being encouraged by watching my mom and my sisters uh, all go to college. And I said, well, I guess I can try that since this hip hop ain't working out um, the way I wanted it to work out because hip hop grew up. You know, I was out here, you know, I was straight hip hop and I was rapping about partying and having fun and dealing with uh, our our community and uplifting our race. And I was rapping about all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I had a couple of pieces that was a little fast, if you will, that folks would say. Uh, But I was pretty much a clean rapper. And um, rap wasn't clean anymore. And so I've lost my place in it. And I was okay with that. And that morphed into me becoming a poet. And I ran my own poetry series for a good while there. And I am, and I do, and I take credit for some of the best poets we have in this country right now started in venues with me. And I'm really honored about that. Uh, Jamal um, versus May, Omari King-Wise, Era D. Matthews, some of the best poets out of this city used to come to my venue, Vi V, all of them. And and I am so proud of that. And then I also became the poet in residence at the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. And so I've brought all those things into the Sasha Center. I pour myself 100% into that work. We do poetry. We have poetry events and venues. Um, we uh, we listen to music. We, we dance. We have art. We have all of these folks from all these different backgrounds and healing spaces come and work with us. We've had yoga, yoga instructors. We've had Reiki masters. We've had... We've had priestesses and priests work with us. We've had people who taught us how to channel crystals. We've had crystal makers. We have these bags of crystals now that we give to our survivors if they want them. They can come to our non-disclosed address and we give them Florida water and crystals and whatever it is that they feel like they need to channel themselves and to be intentional about their healing. Because sometimes it's ritual that reminds you that you need to heal. And if you engage in ritual and routine uh, and if you engage in um, the arts, and if you engage with and 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 amongst the earth and with others, uh, there is healing in that. And then, to uh, part of my other journey is, you know, I trace my family back 
to where we were slaves. And I went there. You know, I don't know if you knew that, but I didn't know that. Yeah, I traced my family back to where we were slaves and I actually found the family, the descendants of the family that owned us when we were enslaved. Whoa. And we have conversation. Um, matter of fact, last summer, um, I needed a break. I needed to get away. And the plantation family invited me to come rest. Whoa. And I went to the plantation where my family were enslaved and rested. Whoa. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that that kind of work mm -hmm. is available to each and every one of us if we really want to dig and if we really want to engage uh, so that we can know who we are. It's mm -hmm. like that's that going, that's that Sankofa principle. I went yeah. back and I went and got it. And I convened with my ancestors on that land and I thanked them. Mm. Uh, and I think that's some powerful stuff. And eventually, uh, when I said culture cures and history heals, we mean that. We take survivors on trips. We took survivors on a culture cures, history heals tour to New Orleans. We want to do the same thing here in Detroit at the Motown Museum. Uh, we want to take a group of survivors to Ghana, West Africa. I mean, I've mm -hmm. taken people to Africa before. I just want to be intentional the next time and make sure I'm taking people who are going to go back and get it. Mm. so that they can integrate and heal. Mm -hmm. And 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 out of all of the, you are such a good interviewer. You've asked me some <laughs> amazing questions here and questions that we all need to keep pondering and thinking about. Um, I don't believe that there are any right or wrong answers, but I believe it's the questions that you've asked and what I've attempted to answer tonight are questions that the Black community needs to keep talking about so that we can ensure that our futures are free from sexual abuse and assault mm -hmm. so our children can be safe and that they can show up and they can grow and they can actually develop quick and have periods at eight years old and nobody freaks out, nobody yeah. dies, and that we make sure that people are, are, are good and that they are respecting and honoring each other. And I think that uh, Black women, particularly Black men too, and, and, and our children need to be respected, honored, and revered in every and all situations. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, just to talk about more of my own self and this work, I I really feel like I am fulfilling um, God's purpose. Mm. I feel like my ancestors are with me. I feel grounded, rooted, and foundational in this work. And the good news is, which is what we always ask our survivors in our groups, what's the good news? Um, the good news is I ain't tired. Okay. <laughs> the good news is I'm going to continue to do this work as long as I have breath in my body. Uh, the good news is, is I have every uh, faith in knowing that Black folks can and will love themselves and love each other harder and more than they ever have before. And I really think it's my job, especially the role of the Sasha Center, is to create those spaces of joy. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not just because I think a lot of times people think about the Sasha Center. Oh, I don't want to drag that all out. No, just come and enjoy yourself. Come mm -hmm. and have some joy. Come and lower that isolation. Come and tell us your depressive symptoms and let us figure out a way together to address those things. Uh, come knowing that we're going to love you and you're not damaged goods and it's not your fault. And you are loved and you are believed and you are important and you are valuable. Mm -hmm. And what that person did to you was they tried their best to take from you what you can't have taken from you because everything you need has already been gifted to you mm -hmm. by a source. And mm. that source loves you. That's so powerful. I feel like we should end there and just tell us about you have you've named before, and I don't remember if you named in this episode or offline. So just say it again just in case. Oh, sure the products that you have, because you mentioned about um, 
like I think you said, a mixtape and some other. Uh, I know you have merchandise and there's other <laughs> ways like, you know, um, what are the ways in which people can um, patronize you in a good way? Oh, yes. yes <laughs> and yes, then yes, yes. also um, how they can donate and, you know, keep it going. I appreciate I appreciate you asking and bringing that up because I almost forgot all about it, which I think is one of the main things I wanted to talk about tonight, which is Sasha Center for Sexual Assault Awareness Month this this month, we have released a free copy of our Sasha Center toolkit. Lots of people call and say, how did you come up with the Sasha Center? Why are you doing this work? How do you engage Black women? All of these things. Why are you uh, engaging in African-based um, principles? All of those questions have been asked. Well, we have a free copy of the, a free version of our full toolkit online at SashaCenter.org. You can click right on it, go to the PDF. While you're there, you can donate to the Sasha Center. Donations help us the most because it helps us get gift cards for our survivors so they can get groceries and gas and all the things that we all need. Um, and then it also gives us revenue to pay our facilitators to run those, run those groups and help us pay for those spaces and the technology that we need to run those groups. Uh, so donations are always helpful. Uh, and then in October, we'll have a physical copy of the full toolkit available for $75. And it's a beautiful toolkit. If you go and look at it now, you're going to want it just as a coffee table experience. And that's how we did this toolkit on purpose. Most toolkits are like dry, black and white, and just a bunch of information. Ours is engaging. It's got beautiful pictures of black women throughout and black men and black children. It's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, book. And it was actually uh, curated by our, um, our, our media person. His name is Nate. And Nate does such a good job with our work. And then we have a third version where you get the copy of the book. And then we also offer online training or in-person training, which we won't start until October, but people can inquire now. Um, and as far as products, we don't have anything. Um, we got t-shirts, the crystals and stuff, all that stuff is free. So we ask that people donate so that we could continue to um, hire our practitioners to do and make those kinds of things for our survivors. Um, and one of the things I was going to say too is that we are on all social media handles, uh, Facebook at Sasha Center, uh, Sasha Center One on Twitter, and then Sasha Center Interns on Twitter because my interns complain that I don't tweet right. So they have control of the Twitter page that says Sasha Center Interns and they do their thing over there. Um, and then um, we have our Instagram page, which is Sasha Center, um, just playing Sasha Center. Um, and if you all just want to assist us, uh, any kind of donation would help. And if you want to kind of see the work that we're doing, um, you can actually see like from the last... I don't know, I want to say four or five years of content um, on Facebook where we've went live, we had our denim day, we have DJs, we have poets, we have survivors, all kinds of folks sharing their stories. Um, we have walking groups too. I want people to know if you, I think the I think the most valuable thing that we can do at this moment, and thank you so much for giving me the time to talk about this, is Black people. If you know somebody who you think could benefit from the Sasha Center, refer them. Let them come to group. Let them come. It's like this summer, we're going to have outside walking groups. We have hula hoop groups. Send people. We need every Black person and every Black woman that hears my voice right now. We need you to be an ambassador. Now, 
I know some of y'all going to hear that as Harriet Tubman. And I know some of y'all going to just snatch these girls up and drag them in. And don't tell us you did that. <laughs> but we know how y'all roll. So what we're saying is gently um, talk about our work. Gently share that you find the person in front of you valuable and important. And if someone discloses to you, be like, look, girl, I don't know what to do. Let's just call the Sasha Center and let's see if we could just go to a group and start there. That that really would be uh, uh, enough payment for us because a lot of times I think that um, we all need permission to show up in space together. And I think we should start giving ourselves our own permission to show up in space together. And I think we should be healing us. That was so powerful. Um, I'm just really honored that, you know, you're my friend, but I'm also honored that I know you. I'm honored to also, know you. <laughs> and I'm just honored that you came by. You know, I've been wanting to get you on this show since like 2018. And the the work that you do, you know, just so people know, um, you've been doing this work yourself for a long time and been, you know, holding it and facilitating it and then growing it. And so just want to send you lots of just encouragement and appreciation and some more energy and just uh, some energy to get some more resources and everything that you need, because you have literally been, you know, championing, championing and am I saying it properly? Yeah, championing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for black women to be healed in this way that is good and useful. Yeah, thank you. And and I have been carrying it a little bit by myself, but I, I can't say that I've been doing it, doing it bye, 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 bye. I know what you mean, right? But there are so many people that have pushed, that have encouraged, that have shown up. My best friend, Kendra Ventura, Larmender Davis, Tanji uh, Reese, Ayana Yet, uh, Zenobia, Kendall Davis. We've got some powerful, powerful sisters, and I don't want to forget anybody. Angela Jackson, the board of directors, they have been very instrumental in learning and leaning into this stuff that I have inside of me that just I have to get out. And so they've been so supportive. I don't think I could do it without them and without you because you've been there supporting me, listening to me, believing me, saying, let's go. I'm not afraid. When we started doing that stuff with the Mute R. Kelly campaign, <laughs> you were right I, I there. was afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Let but, me keep it a buck. I was afraid because <laughs> them R. Kelly uh, women enablers are scary. <laughs> and they threatened us. They did. And they did. Yeah, they that did. was scary. They did. And thank God we're on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. But I also think that those are the rough conversations. I think yeah. those are the rough questions. I think uh, there's still room for massaging that, right? And I think there's still room for talking about that. And I think all of that, again, is just steeped in our, it's, it's not entirely our fault that we were raised to have this same kind of narrative about black women and their bodies, black women and rape and black men and, and their capacity and their bodies. We can't even talk about sexual assault to black men without first acknowledging Emmett Till. 
as black women, mm. we got to talk about it because there's so many black men who have been wrongfully accused and murdered and killed and done for everything yeah. else just by looking at somebody a certain yeah. way, just by doing, as we know, many things. And so a lot of times I'm saying that at the Sasha Center, we want to encourage us all to begin to have these tough conversations and what they mean. And how do we uh, how do we move beyond those conversations and how do we move into having new narratives about our love and about what we're doing as a people? Uh, to help us uh, heal because because we've got some work to do. We definitely do. And and yes, I have been championing this thing, and but, I, but not by myself, by myself. But I do know what you mean. It was my own personal experiences that brought me to this place of Sasha Center mm-hmm. from when I worked at the Detroit Police Department as a social worker, helping sexual, sexual assault survivors while they were stockpiling 11,000 rape kits. And I didn't know. I was working there when they were doing that and I didn't know. Uh, And so it's all of those experiences that I pour into every um, opportunity to actually help a black woman and our black families heal and our black communities. And one of the things we have to do is remove all shame and guilt around talking about this one particular issue and problem that we have in community. Mm -hmm. And thank you. So, um, yeah, this is this has been a super powerful episode is one of the most powerful episodes we've had and just grateful to you Kalima Johnson Nikki D <laughs> thank you Piper. Uh, Sasha love Center you. love you too and yeah so this has been the Piper Carter podcast on Detroit is different podcast network check the description for um the website for um sashacenter.org and Sasha Center on IG and Sasha Center one on Twitter yep. and Sasha Center interns on Twitter <laughs> and um, just get in contact, donate, 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 because this work is really important. If you have access to a lot of dough sponsor, um, because it's, you know, it's the work is never ending. And so just keep listening, share, like, subscribe. Um, we're on YouTube as well as iHeartRadio, Spotify network, Apple podcasts, Amazon music and um, audible. So we appreciate you and um, we'll see you next week. Peace. Thank you, Piper.